According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, uh, where, well, we won't be there very long, but we can get started there. Matthew 26. This is, I think, our third session in episode 22, the institution of the Lord's Supper. We want to make sure we're clear on this. When Jesus says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We need to understand what our application is as church age believers. What is meant by the my blood of the new covenant? My blood of the new covenant. And uh, what is our uh, response to that? What is our relationship to that in the church? The church was not in existence when he gave this to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. But the church very quickly comes into existence. And once the church is in existence, communion is presented as being a memorial for us to observe. It is a church age memorial. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Specifically, it is a church ritual. It is virtually our only church ritual other than water baptism. All right. And that's that we think of that as a one time ritual whereby we testify to our faith in Christ. And we don't we don't get rebaptized every single month. But we take communion every single month. We have a periodic communion, right? So we want to understand what is our relationship to the new covenant. Because the new covenant is not made with the church. The new covenant is made with Israel. And so uh, I think we spent last week proving that repeatedly, redundantly, overwhelmingly, that the new covenant is with Israel. It's not with the church. But the memorial is for the church. So why are we given a memorial that's for us? Of a covenant that's not with us. And if we answer that, we'll walk out of here uh, miles ahead of most people and don't even puzzle over why this is a, why this is a question. All right. So let's start with a word of prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We rejoice, Father, in the privilege we have to study, to show ourselves approved. Father, uh, open our eyes to this uh, doctrine so that uh, not only will we know it and understand it, but we would also appreciate it and embrace it and, uh, and fully recognize what it is that you call for us to do. Uh, why, why do we observe communion month after month? And uh, what is our role with respect to the new covenant? I thank you and I praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In the outline, we uh, have seen so far point one. Bread and wine were features of the Jewish Passover, but Jesus gave his disciples a new insight applicable to the dispensation of the church and commanded for church observance. This is new insight, things that they could not have understood before uh, related to his body, related to his blood and why it is that it's commanded to be observed. Do this in remembrance of me. Relating Luke 22:19 to 1 Corinthians 11, verses uh, 23 through 26, we had some subpoints, but we'll pass by those. Uh, secondly, I recommend Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Passover Haggadah, and uh, we read a significant portion of that, and we will see it played out for us when Ariel Ministries arrives on Easter Sunday, and we will have the Passover uh, dinner here at Austin Bible Church coming up at 6 p.m. on Sunday evening um april the uh the april 8th i guess is the is the passover uh easter sunday at a point three the new covenant is not with the church but with israel and specifically not just any israel repentant israel repentant and accepting christ regathered from the four corners of the earth the new covenant is not even issued or spoken of taught or revealed until jeremiah until they are on the verge of being swept captive. So on the eve of their Babylonian captivity is when the Lord through Jeremiah starts to assure them that they will have a regathering. 
and that when they are repentant and when they are regathered, at that time he will put the new covenant into effect. And so the new covenant is with repentant Israel. The new covenant is not with the church, but with Israel. Repentant and accepting Christ. Regathered from the four corners of the earth. And that's not unique to Jeremiah. It's not exclusively Jeremiah's revelation. We have Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 37, uh, compared to Jeremiah 32, verses 37 through 40. And uh, in addition to that, we have the testimony from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was Jeremiah's contemporary uh, who was in Babylon at the time Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. They gave uh, correlating messages, and we want to understand both of them. And in uh, Ezekiel, you have chapter 20 and verse 37. Ezekiel 34, verses 25 through 31. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 32. And Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. And that's where we ran out of time last week. The uh, dry bones of of, uh, Ezekiel, uh, that it is a resurrected nation. It is a nation that is thought dead. All right, when you're looking down at a skeleton, I don't know if you've ever seen a, all right, you know, just, uh, um, well, I mean, funerals, I guess, and loved ones we have, but an actual uh, corpse that you don't know and you don't expect to see, not in a funeral setting, you just stumble across a dead body somewhere in the, in the, in the wild or in the world or wherever. Uh, if, you, if you come across a skeleton and all you see is bones, um, you have no expectations that, that this person is alive. <laughs> right? <clears throat> You're looking at a skeleton. This this person used to be alive and they're now gone. They're dead. They're not coming back. All right? And that's the impact of the dry bones chapter there in, in uh, Ezekiel is that the bones do come back and that flesh is formed around the bones and that life is breathed into the flesh and that the body stands alive again. And uh, Israel as a nation was dead for 1900 years. All right. But now flesh has been put on those bones and breath has been breathed into that flesh and and a living body then has uh, has come back. All right. Doug, you want to check that out? All right. So the new covenant is not with a church, but with Israel, repentant and accepting Christ. Nevertheless, we have the statement. This blood is let's look at it again in Matthew 26. The, um, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. All right. Now, how, how do we relate to this? What is this about? The blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All right, that's a, oh, okay. I was getting a signal I wasn't familiar with. Okay. All right. The blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. All right, well, there it is. So we say, okay, uh, my sins are forgiven. This must be about me. All right, this must be about me. Yes, uh, my sins are forgiven, but wait a minute. There's more to it than that. All right. There's more to it than that. In what way is blood poured out? In what way is blood applied? In which way is blood on behalf of somebody else? And this is why we we take the time to understand the whole counsel of God's word and the ways in which blood is poured out, the way in which blood is sprinkled, the way in which blood is smeared or anointed, applied. All right. The way in which blood is on behalf of somebody else. When does blood become substitutionary? When does blood become, um, uh, you know, in place of somebody else? When it is applied to that account? How does this work? And uh, we want to we want to go through the the full understanding of that so that we don't confuse why this covenant, even though yes I'm forgiven, my sins are forgiven, and the blood of Christ cleanses me from all from all sin, why it is with reference to this covenant, it's not about me, it's not about the church, it's about Israel. Now, again, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. for this is the blood, my blood, of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. So it is looking forward. It is, <clears throat> it is speaking of his death on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, but it's not looking to the church. It's looking beyond the church. It's looking forward. That day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. My Father's kingdom. All right. With respect to my blood and with respect to the blood of Christ and how it is his and only his, we want to understand what does the book of Hebrews teach us here? So sub point A, let's identify first of all with this. I think if we spell it out under point A and point B, it'll be made, made very clear for us. Sub point A, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And for this, we have Hebrews 8.6, Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 12.24. I think if we start with that, we'll do ourselves a huge favor. So join me over in Hebrews chapter 8. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Sometimes it's helpful if we just stop what we're doing and boil everything down to a main point so that we don't lose track of what, what's really going on. Let's do that here. That way we don't get confused related to uh, the church and being replacement theology, taking the place of Israel and being the recipients of the new covenant. That somehow Yahweh is making a covenant with the church and uh, he's party with us. That's not what's happening. <clears throat> All right, Hebrews chapter 8. I love the way um, this starts off. Hebrews 8.1, now the main point of what has been said is this. <laughs> In other words, if you've read seven chapters of Hebrews and you're wondering, huh, right, what's that? What's he really saying? All right, there's a lot of doctrine in those first seven chapters of Hebrews. But if you want to boil it all down, the author of Hebrews does that for us here. The main point of what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. All right, let's boil down seven chapters of Hebrews into this. Jesus Christ is a great high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. What Israel had in the Old Testament was a replica. Israel had in the Old Testament was a, was a facsimile. Okay? It was not the real deal. You know, years ago, Sharon and I went to Nashville, Tennessee. You know what they have in Nashville, Tennessee? They have a replica of the Parthenon. And it's life-size. Uh, and even better, it's not destroyed like the real Parthenon in Athens was thousands of years ago, which is just a ruin. You can actually walk through the, the Parthenon replica of, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's all, and it's recreated life-size to scale with all of the replicas of all the, 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 the gods and goddesses and all the statues and all the, all the things. It's even ADA compliant with wheelchair access, which I don't think they had back then. <laughs> all right. And you go through the gift shop on your way out, which they, they probably had back then too. <clears throat> but that's a, that's a replica. All right. It's not the real Parthenon. I've never... I, Never been to Athens. Well, we refueled there once, but I've never left the Athens airport. I've never uh, toured Athens. I've never seen the real Parthenon. I've just seen the replica. Well, every high priest that ever served in the tabernacle or the temple, Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or whatever, all they served in was the earthly replica. The earthly replica of a heavenly reality. But Jesus serves in the heavenly reality. So he's a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. And he did so not with blood, not his own. He did so with his own blood. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since 
there were those who offer the gifts according to law. In fact, the replica had a priesthood that he wasn't qualified to serve in, let alone be the high priest. He couldn't even be a, a flunky low priest. Okay, uh, He was from the tribe of Judah. And the requirements for the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, are uh, the requirements of, of earthly birth. Uh, so they offer gifts according to law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all these things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So there was a blueprint patterned after the heavenly reality. We get to verse 6, though. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant the mediator of a better covenant the new covenant is going to do what the old covenant could never do all right could never do individually and could never do corporately that's important i think a lot of times we get lost in this because we understand what it could not do individually and we lose track of what it also could not do corporately and we gotta we gotta lock in on that Notice now, a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So, let's not separate out what Jesus Christ is doing on Friday, April 3rd. Let's, let's recognize what he's doing and what are the promises associated with what he's doing. Promises in terms of individual faith acceptance, we get that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. We get that. But there are other promises that are not just simply made to unbelievers and, and how they can receive eternal life, but promises that are made to Israel and how Yahweh will deal with Israel as a nation. All right? Keep those promises separate. Corporate promises to Israel are different than individual promises to an unbeliever that needs eternal life. All right? So he's the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Notice, has the covenant already been enacted? Has been enacted on better promises. Right. And so, as a mediator which, of a covenant that's been enacted, having shed blood that, that ratifies that covenant, but when does that shed blood get applied? Okay. Not yet applied. Not today. Not yet. Ready to be applied but not yet applied. Now, are we clear on that? Any, any questions there before I move on? Because this is so vital. People get so confused. This has nothing to do with an unbeliever going to heaven when he dies. All right? But, but both are made possible because Jesus died on the cross. That's, that's why people get confused. Okay? Um, I'm a believer who's going to go to heaven when I die. And take, you know, any random unbeliever who's going to go to hell when he dies. Now, how is it that he's going to receive eternal life? By believing in Christ. By placing his faith in Christ. By trusting in Christ. And he's going to receive eternal life by trusting in Christ. How is that possible? How can the Father forgive him? How can the Father save him? It's made possible because the blood was shed on the cross. The sin, because, because his sins were applied to Christ on the cross. Because God's wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross. So, it, he can believe and receive eternal life, and that's possible because of the cross. But the cross did more than accomplish individual human redemption, is what I'm trying to say. The cross is the basis of that, but the cross is also the basis of other things, such as Israel's new covenant. And if you mash those together as all the same thing, Jesus died on the cross. You fail to recognize what he was doing for three, year, for three hours of darkness in accepting that wrath and what he was doing in, in um, pouring out his blood and what he did afterwards when he ascended to cleanse that, that heavenly temple, that heavenly reality. All right? Now, if you, if you just say, well, it's all the same thing, Jesus died on the cross. Okay? You have a question on that? So 
That's right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I couldn't have said it better myself. You just said it perfectly. All right. When Jesus died on the cross, he was accomplishing two different things. Actually, I think more than that, but I'm not going to confuse things today. I'm just going to keep it with these two. All right. That, yes, he was the he was accepting the wrath of God for all human sin. And because of that, of course, we can place our faith in Christ and receive eternal life. Beyond that, in addition to that, he was also shedding the blood of the covenant of the new covenant uh, related to Israel. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, then, if we can identify with that, we're in uh, we're in good shape. The um, I, I think this is the, the hardest thing for for us to wrap our minds around today, because we have a stewardship in the church that is that coincides with salvation. Right. That that you can't even be a part of the church, a part of the body of Christ until you receive eternal life. Yeah, when you place your faith in Christ, you're saved. You, you're, you receive eternal life. You're part of the body and bride of Christ. You're part of the church. So our stewardship is equal to salvation. That's not the case in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when God brought all Israel out of Egypt, do you think they all had eternal life? Or were there some Jewish unbelievers in that crowd? Right. And, uh, and so and, and their stewardship as far as being a covenant nation uh, had no bearing on whether they had eternal life or not. And, the, and the, the, the tribes, the Levites, the priests, whether they were saved or not, if your dad was the high priest, you're next in line to be high priest. And uh, you know, if your dad was king, you're next in line to be king in, in, in the tribal descent and in everything, in the tribes and their clans and their families and in their land grant and all of that. Their, their uh, covenant, their uh, um, stewardship relationship was not connected to eternal life like it is for you and I. Uh, a Jewish person became part of the covenant nation of Israel by being physically born to Jewish parents. You and I become part of the church by being spiritually born by God the Father. See the difference? So, yeah, the stewardship of Israel had believers and unbelievers alike still in the stewardship. But we, of course, our stewardship is strictly of, of believers. If an unbeliever comes in and, you know, as a part of a local church flock or whatever, if they're not saved, they're not truly a part of the stewardship. They need to get eternal life. That's step one for our stewardship. All right. Now, continuing on then in Hebrews, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. In other words, if, if uh, the Mosaic covenant would have done... Uh, could have prepared Israel for the kingdom and made them perfect and suited for their perfect king, then we wouldn't need the new covenant. But finding fault with them, in other words, a conditional covenant that Israel could not keep, um, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant, again, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. So, there are people who say that, well, you can't really count Jeremiah 31 as excluding the church because the church wasn't revealed yet. So once the church is revealed, now we can go ahead and steal their covenants. Okay? No. Hebrews validates what, what Jeremiah said. The church has been around and, uh, for 40 years before Hebrews gets written. Or at least 30 years. And Hebrews gets written here. And it still is with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It's made with them. And it's designed to accomplish what Mosaic Covenant could not do. Now let me ask you, what is it the Mosaic Covenant could not do? And here's again where people get confused because all they can think about is the blood of Christ saves unbelievers. It could not prepare the nation of Israel for the, for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's right. Could not The Mosaic Law could not prepare the nation of Israel for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God the Father on earth. That's what it could not do. And people get confused because they say, well, Mosaic law couldn't save anybody. Mosaic law couldn't give you eternal life. Okay? 
I agree. Mosaic law doesn't save anybody. Mosaic law couldn't give you eternal life, but it couldn't give them eternal life. That's not the point of Hebrews 8. That's not the point of why there's a new covenant. A new covenant is not designed to give unbelievers eternal life. A new covenant is designed to prepare Israel for the kingdom relationship with uh, Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of David. Now, so it's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What was God doing at Sinai? He was taking a people out of bondage, out of Egypt, taking a people and, and preparing them to enter into their land. The Mosaic Covenant was not designed to give them eternal life. The Mosaic Covenant was designed to take a people and give them a law in which as a nation they would operate in their land. It was preparing the people for their land. But it's not going to cover it. It's not going to cut it for them in, in the Millennial Kingdom. That's why it has to be replaced. It was a conditional covenant. They never could keep it. They would break it you know, quicker than anything. All right. In fact, they were breaking it before Moses even got down off the mountain. Right? He comes down the first time. They said, oh, all that the Lord says we will do. He says, okay. So he goes up for 40 days and 40 nights. And he doesn't even finish that. And they're down there making a golden calf and fornicating and doing all their stuff. Right? Now. <clears throat> so this is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Now, that covenant was a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do that, I will curse you. New covenant is not like that. New covenant is not unconditional. Or conditional. It's unconditional. I will, I will, I will. And they can't break it. All right. For this is the covenant I will make. Verse 10 of Hebrews 8 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. They, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more tablets of stone. He's going to turn their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He's going to write the law on their heart. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. There'll be no more tribe like the tribe of Levi teaching the other tribes. All 12 tribes or all 13 tribes, including the tribe of Levi, they will all have a teaching role towards the Gentiles. I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. All right. So when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. All right, don't, don't take that verse personally. And this applies to Israel and the law, Mosaic law, doesn't apply to, sometimes I feel obsolete and growing old, but that's, it's not personal. It's related to Israel and the Mosaic covenant. All right. Now, so understand that this is made possible. This is made possible by the blood of Christ. That's the blood that the Father will accept to ratify this covenant. Now, Moving down to chapter 9. Um, and likewise, we've got a contrast between what they had there and we have uh, what, what Christ accomplished on the cross. Verse 11. When Christ appeared... Let's see. Let me back up. In verses 1 through 5, we understand that the first covenant had regulations of worship and so forth, the tabernacle and so forth, the Holy of Holies and all this other stuff. Um, above it, verse 5, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Boy, I know the feeling. <laughs> the author of Hebrews says, man, I'm just running out of time. I can't, I can't take in all that. And when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Now, why were they doing this? Were they doing this day after day after day so that unbelievers could receive eternal life and go to heaven when they die? No. They were doing this as a part of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, as a part of their covenant nation, as a part of Israel being the covenant nation before the Lord. Into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. 
All right. And all of this is just symbolic. Notice verse 9. It's a symbol for the present time. Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which can never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Perfect in conscience. What is this related to? This is related to Israel being a holy nation. Israel being perfected in conscience. Israel being the holy nation, serving the Lord their God, representing God to the Gentile nations. Doesn't have to do with an individual unbeliever getting eternal life and going to heaven when he dies. All right, they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, remember he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now, when did he do this? Did he do this on Friday, April 3rd? Or did he do this when he ascended? When he ascended, that's right. Okay. This is why we have to study his ascensions and we will do this. Did he ascend more than once? Did he ascend more than twice? Did he ascend three times? How many ascensions did he have? All right. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That's the language that describes our heavenly bodies, by the way. When, we, when this earthly tabernacle is torn down, when we leave our physical tents, when, the, when we physically die and this tent goes into the dirt, our, uh, we get the body made without hands, not of this creation. All right, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. All right, Now, what is it that the blood of goats and calves cannot do? Why is it that it needed his own blood shed? His own blood shed. Substitutionary. On behalf of. In the place of others. On behalf of others. Okay. We think of that substitutionary sacrificial death related to our redemption. Let's also think of substitutionary sacrificial death on behalf of Israel's cleansing and preparation for Israel's covenant status. All right. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Israel as a nation has to be cleansed to serve God in their national stewardship, which they will exercise in the millennial kingdom. All right. And they have to be cleansed to serve the living God. Cleansed to serve. Cleansed to serve. This is Israel as a nation. All right. Then verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, there's a huge problem. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the patriarchs and, and David and all the, all the Old Testament saints and all of their cleansing under Mosaic law wasn't going to suit them for entering into the millennium. You know, if they were resurrected and if they were resurrected without Christ dying on the cross, and they were still saved, they were still forgiven, their sins were passed over and atoned for, covered, passed over. But if they were resurrected without the cross, they would still not be suited to enter into a millennial kingdom and to serve the way that they're going to be able to serve under the new covenant. Because Mosaic covenant didn't do it. Mosaic Covenant was at best just a shadow looking forward. All right. Now. You'll notice um, those things were just copies. Um, Verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices with these. Again, it's the reality, not the picture. 
Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. No, once and for all. That's an eternal sacrifice for an eternal unconditional covenant. All right. Finally then, Hebrews 12, 24 is the last of these references to Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 24. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and a whirlwind. Remember, that was Sinai. That was Old Testament. That was a mountain of fear, a mountain where you can't draw close, a mountain where somebody's going to go in on your behalf and you're never going up. A blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Oh, it's terrifying. I don't want to hear any more. You go be our mediator. You go be our mediator. And Moses comes back with a conditional covenant that they couldn't keep. Well, Christ is going to be the mediator. He's going to come back with an unconditional covenant that they, don't, they can't keep. They're going to keep because he keeps it on an unconditional basis. For if they could not even bear the command, and so say, terrible was the sight, then Moses said, I'm full of trembling. That's not where we come to. That's not where Israel's coming to. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly, and to the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. All right? Moses gave them Sinai, but Jesus gives them the new covenant when they're ready to enter into the millennial kingdom. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Again, we want to just boil this down. The new covenant is not with the church. The new covenant is with Israel. Repenting and accepting Christ. Regathered from the four corners of the earth. Subpoint A, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Subpoint B, what are we? Members of the church are ministers of the new covenant. Members of the church are ministers of the new covenant. And we will be in Hebrews here shortly, but let's back up to 2 Corinthians 3.6. Members of the church are ministers of the new covenant. Ministers of the new covenant. I want you to understand this. When you, have, when you understand how the, the tribe of Levi was set apart to minister uh, for Israel on Israel's behalf, interceding between, as a mediator between, uh, Moses was a mediator between God and Israel, and the priests and the Levites were ministers between God and, and the non-priestly tribes of Israel. Hopefully we'll start making a connection with what we are doing in Christ. Christ is the mediator and we are ministers in Christ. Ministers in Christ. All right, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need a sum, letters of commendation to you or for you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The church is a spiritual reality. The church is a spiritual reality. And as we minister, things get written and they're viewed. They're, they're, they're viewed by men with spiritual eyes to see it. They're viewed by angels as they watch grace unfold in the church. They're viewed by God. You are our letter. Written in our hearts. Known and read by all men. You see what happens as... The Word of God is ministered as Paul sacrificially pours out his life for the flock at Corinth. They themselves are his letter. They're his uh, credentials. All right. It's not whether he has a, a license in his wallet or a diploma on the wall. They are his credentials. They themselves, believers that have been taught, believers that have been fed. And they're actually written on his heart. 
known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, some of this is similar to language we have in the New Covenant, right? Similar in the sense that when he's... When he makes his new covenant with Israel, it won't be on tablets of stones. It'll be tablets of human hearts. Yes, that is a, a, a similarity. But it's not the same thing as what was promised for Israel in the new covenant. What was promised for Israel in the new covenant? That their enemies would be destroyed, that they'd be gathered into the land, that they would have uh, agricultural blessings, that they would have glories in the coming kingdom. And they would have God's law written upon their heart. But this is different. This is uh, the testimony, a letter of Christ written on our heart. This isn't the law of God written on our heart. This is a testimony of Christ, a testimony of grace, a testimony of sacrificial love. The way that the body of Christ ministers to one another. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Through Christ toward God. This is our access to the Father. Through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. It's all grace. Who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Servants. Ministers. If you prefer, use the word deacons. It's the same word. All right, so we have, understand the role of a deacon in a, in a flock, the role of a deacon in a church. If you've got a pastor and you've got deacons, understand what our role is with Christ as the good shepherd. Christ is our pastor. We're the deacons. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We are deacons of the new covenant, ministers of the new covenant. In other words, we are here to serve Christ in this world, even as Deacons are here to assist the pastor in this flock. Does that imagery help you? Okay. If that imagery helps you, then you start to understand what our role is towards this new covenant. And much of what our role is going to be with respect to this new covenant can't start today. It has to wait until second advent. Until we come back when he comes back. You understand, because the blood of the covenant is not yet applied to the nation of Israel. That new covenant is still future. It's it's been uh, enacted and the blood has been shed. The temple has been cleansed. But it has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. It's not yet been sprinkled upon the nation of Israel. When's that going to happen? When he brings them under the rod of the covenant. That's right. He's going to gather them into the wilderness judgment of Israel. We looked at that in Ezekiel 20 verse 37 last week. All right. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We have to be a stewardship that's not a stewardship of law. A stewardship of law is condemning. A stewardship of the spirit that gives life is 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 grace and redeeming and uplifting and, and everything else understand what is the church age why are we growing in the church age god is doing with the church what he did with jesus you ever think about that jesus uh he had to, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered that he had to be made a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to god what's he doing with us right now making us to be faithful and merciful ministers under our great high priest. And we're learning that through the things that we suffer. We're learning that through the, the testings we go through. We're learning that through the grace that sustains us. It's this ministry of the Spirit that builds us up. All right. So we use great boldness in our speech. We're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Now, we look, we with unveiled face, verse 18, we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. 
we are being transformed into the same image. This is what this is our growth from the day we got saved to the day he takes us to glory. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord to the Spirit. And so consider what we're being suited for. Consider what we will be prepared to do when we have left this world, when He's done suiting us as He was done suiting Christ. The role that we're going to have in the second advent in the millennial kingdom as ministers of this new covenant. All right. To this day, though, their minds are hardened and uh, the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. You talk to a Jewish person today who's still caught up in the, the things of Moses, they're going to be blinded to the reality of what Christ fulfilled on the cross. That's why I'm, I'm really excited about what we're going to have in the, in the Passover service this year. How we're going to have Christ in the Passover, all the doctrine related to Christ. What he fulfilled in, in, in the work of the cross. Why it is that we can testify to that as ministers of the new covenant. All right. Over to Hebrews then. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. So what's our role? Do we, do we hang on crosses? What do we do today? Yeah, we, uh, we go where he went. We function in the heavenly places because we're a heavenly people. All right. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Here's our priesthood. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, the Levitical priesthood had their procedures for their with a laver and they had uh, to cleanse their temple and they had to cleanse their garments and they had to cleanse themselves and then they could enter into the tabernacle and then the, the, the high priest, priest and Levites could all enter into the outer court. The high priest and priest could enter into the tabernacle. The high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. But we all are washed and sprinkled clean. We all can enter into the Holy of Holies. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We get to operate in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. We get to partake of our heavenly priesthood right now, today. We're not waiting for heaven to get there. We're there now. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is what we do as we're worshiping Him. We're, we're uh, considering, dwelling on, chewing on, thinking about how it is that we can goad one another to accelerate our Christian walk to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is our heavenly priesthood. And if we're a heavenly people, this is what we should be engaged in on a day-by-day basis, moment-by-moment. All right. Heavenly focused so that we can have earthly stimulation to one another. Members of the church are ministers of the new covenant. How do we minister? Where do we minister? Wherever we are. That's right. But we minister in the heavenly places. We minister in Christ. We're before the Father. All right, holding fast the confession of our hope. We're drawing near, not to a mercy seat. We're drawing near to a throne of grace. We're worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. We don't, we're not going to a holy mountain. We've, we've already come to our holy mountain. And we, uh, we're drawing near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Man, isn't this amazing? And it's not, uh, it's not the power of an earth, it's not the testimony of an earthly life, it's the power of an indestructible life whereby we can approach this. All right, this is our new covenant. A covenant that um, we're going to be ministering 
We minister now, but we'll have a unique ministering as deacons when Christ comes back to apply this blood to Israel. Has the blood been applied to Israel yet? No. Can we minister that blood to Israel today? No. No. As as of today, there is no Jew nor Gentile. What we do today is we proclaim Christ. We We want Jewish unbelievers, just like we want Gentile unbelievers, to come to faith in Christ. To be ushered into the body and bride of Christ where they can join us as ministers of this new covenant. A new covenant that will be put into effect with Israel after the church departs. A new covenant that will be applied to Israel after the tribulation humbles unbelieving Israel. Uh, A new covenant that will be put into effect at Armageddon, at the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right. Point four. The blood of the covenant establishes the contrast between Mosaic law and the new covenant. Point four. The blood of the covenant establishes the contrast between Mosaic law and the new covenant. Mosaic law had blood. It was offered on the very first time by Moses and the high priest Aaron. And then after that, it was offered again and again and again and again and again. Every single day of atonement. Here we go again. Not so with Jesus Christ and the blood of the eternal covenant. A huge contrast we've got to understand. We've seen a lot of this already uh, because I got carried away in some of the earlier points um, related to Hebrews, but Hebrews 7. Again, verse 11. But first of all, even before you get to verse 11 in Hebrews 7, we start to realize how it was inferior. What is the point of Melchizedek as he's introduced here? Um, This is part of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Um, Let's see here. Talking about Melchizedek in verses 1 through 3. And how uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so Levi, who was in the loins of, of uh, Abraham, paid tithes. The, the lesser serves the greater. The, uh, the Levitical priesthood is uh, inferior to the priesthood that Melchizedek uh, typified and exemplified. All right. Uh, so, verse 11, Hebrews 7, 11, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? But see, perfection could never come through the Levitical priesthood. Ever. That was a priesthood attached to a conditional covenant. That was a priesthood attached... The, 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 very, the very covenant that caused Aaron and his sons to become... Uh, Levitical priests is the the very covenant that could never prepare the nation for the for the millennial kingdom, and so it didn't matter year after year after year after year, no matter what son of Aaron ever got born and ever uh, ever gave a day of atonement sacrifice, it would never prepare Israel for the millennial kingdom. It would be a one year anticipation of a reality, and so. Um, Clearly, this covenant uh, could not be replaced with um, with somebody under that first covenant. Does that make sense? How how could you how could you replace this first covenant with a second covenant if if the mediator was himself under the, that first covenant? That's the point. You need to have a separate priesthood altogether. Okay. When the priesthood is changed from necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. It's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. 
He, he couldn't have been a Levitical priest. A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. You know, the idea of a Levitical priest instituting a change to Mosaic law and, and, and bringing in the new covenant is, is as unthinkable as somebody under, somebody in Adam redeeming us from Adam's sin. Impossible. How could, how, how could somebody in Adam die on the cross for our sins and redeem us from our Adamic lost estate? No, nobody could. Which is why Christ had to be born of a virgin, not in Adam. And we understand that. So the idea that a priest, a Levitical priest, could replace the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant, is, is, is just, it, it wouldn't happen. There's no way that it could happen. Because his whole priesthood is under the very covenant that he's trying to, uh, trying to um, make obsolete. All right? Not abolished. The law is never abolished, but made obsolete, ready to disappear. Now, uh, so where <clears throat> the priesthood has changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. And uh, that's what we have here. And why it is that he came uh, according to the likeness of Melchizedek. He functioned in a priesthood that was not Levitical. It was in the likeness of how Melchizedek functioned. Melchizedek was a prophet and a king. And uh, Jesus comes as a prophet and a king and he operates in a priesthood like the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Wow. <laughs> you know, a Levitical priest became a priest because his dad was a Levitical priest. Physical requirement. And he could be the biggest loser ever to come along as an unbeliever and a heretic and a, and a rebel and whatever. But his dad was a priest, so he's a priest. How about that? With the power of an indestructible life. How do you and I hold our priesthood? By the power of an indestructible life. Same as Christ. We believe in Christ. We receive eternal life. We have the power of an indestructible life. In Christ. Alright, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, does this mean that the law is passing away? Does this mean that he's done away with the law? It's fulfilled in Christ. It, is, uh, it was weak and useless. It could not, it could not bring Israel into the, into, uh, the eternal kingdom. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Through which we draw near to God. All right. And so this is how it is that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. See it there in verse 22? Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And this is so awesome. We, there's much more to deal with this. We, um, uh, and we'll come back next week and, and address this how it is that a priesthood is inaugurated, how it is that a priest is consecrated, how it is that a, a, a covenant is not only enacted, not only uh, ratified by the shedding of blood, but also um, put into effect through the application of that blood. It, this new covenant has been enacted. The blood has been shed, but the blood has not yet been applied, not nationally. Not until Second Advent. We'll have to prove that to you next week. But this is part of what we looked at in, in Ukraine with eschatology, with all these prophecies about how the Christ was going to be a king. Shiloh, uh, the, 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 the uh, scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh arises. But then you are a priest. How could he be a king and a priest? And we have these what might be contradictory prophecies that a Jewish person would be left wondering. They can't both be true. How can they both be fulfilled? If he's of the tribe of Judah, he can be king. If he's, if he's a priest, he's got to be from Levi. What is this priest according to Melchizedek? See, and Jews, until it was fulfilled in Christ, until we have Hebrews written, an Old Testament Jew would look forward and just scratch his head and say, well, how does this all work? That's why Hebrews is written, to show us how it works in any event. And we, we have the blessing in the church to... Uh, to embrace, I mean, if you think Hebrews is, is, a, is a favorite book for church age saints, what do you think Hebrews, what, what effect do you think Hebrews is going to have in the tribulation? 
After the church is gone, after the first few Jews start getting saved and start understanding that, that their stewardship has been returned and that there's a tribulation they're going under and that the kingdom of heaven is once again at hand again, oh man, do you think Hebrews is going to have an impact for them? You better believe it. The blood of the covenant, the indestructible life, eternal life through faith in Christ. In addition to national blood applications for the coming earthly kingdom. So Hebrews are going to be awesome for the tribulational saints. And, and uh, what, a, what a thrill that would have to be for Jewish believers in that, time, in that coming time. All right. We will uh, pick up on this next week. There are subpoints A, B, and C. And then main point five uh, to wrap up the uh, totality of what we're looking at here in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We give you the praise and the glory for what you accomplished through your Son so much more than what we, we usually even think about. We, we're so selfish. Father, we're just puny, selfish humans, and we think that when Jesus died on the cross, it was all about us. Father, um, it was not. It was all about you and your plan to glorify Him in all things. And uh, Father, help us to understand, widen our understanding, Broaden the scope of our thinking. Keep us from being self-centered to be Christ-centered. And Father, I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.